1952, L. Ron Hubbard published arguably his most occult work, albeit veiled by the jargon of Dianetics, which, if we're being honest, only gave the book a more esoteric feel. The book was What to Audit, and it focused on moving beyond the present life of the individual to explore past lives going back trillions of years across galaxies. Hubbard, who had connections to Aleister Crowley through Jack Parsons, detailed a Gnostic vision of the path to enlightenment for a multi-part self that had strong theosophical undertones. While it may seem strange to say, Scientology, as a religion, is very much a form of occultism. It wasn't at first. When Hubbard wrote the movement's originating text about a practice he called Dianetics, the theories and practices he described were more of a speculative form of psychology with a heavy debt to Sigmund Freud. Throughout his life, Hubbard considered professional psychiatry to be one of his main rivals for the animosity his Dianetics had inspired in professional psychiatrists. But then, in the 1950s, Hubbard pivoted from promoting Dianetics as a social science to placing Dianetics at the center of a new religion. The world, but most especially the world around Hollywood, California, would never be the same again. My name is Dr. Rob C. Thompson, bringing you part one of our conversation about L. Ron Hubbard. I'm just going to warn you right off the bat, even before I introduce my panelists today, that this is part one, which we are putting on the main feed. Everyone can hear this. But part two, you got to be a patron. Summer is a downtime for Patreon. Uh, We tend to, to lose some patrons over the summer. It's just, I don't know, it's the way it is. I don't know, people go on vacation, their credit cards expire. We need to, to add more patrons to keep the, the good occult podcasting and strange writing and all the cool, cool stuff that we do coming your way. So, uh, if you want to hear part two, for as little as $2 a month, you can. In the meantime, I will give you the first half of L. Ron Hubbard's life for free, right here on the main site. Uh, Savannah Verrett is here, our sister of the 84th degree. Hello. Speaking of strange rides, how's that going over there, that Strange Ride podcast? Yeah, Strange Ride, we're riding along. (laughs) (laughs) Riding along. You are taking me to all kinds of strange places. It's been so much fun talking about all these weird things. Like, we're getting ready to finish up talking about uh, Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark, the Mm Spider-Man Broadway musical. And then next month... Or I guess, when is this releasing in August? Yeah, it's a couple of days by month out, yeah. Okay. Uh, In August, uh, the theme of that month will be Five Nights at Freddy's, actually, which Rob has never heard of. So I will be teaching him about the game and trying to teach him about the lore, which will be really fun. (laughs) I have committed to playing at least some of the first game before I go on with Savannah so that I can have just enough knowledge to screw it all up. Yes. Oh, trust me. I was trying to describe this at work the other day to one of my friends and they were like, I can't wait to hear what Rob has to say about this because this is a nonsense. But I'm going to fix it. There's holes in the lore and I've been doing, I've literally, my brain, I'm dreaming about solving the lore because i'm reading so much about the lore that i'm going to solve it our producer discordia is with us luke kenneman <laughs> hello i have no input on five nights at freddy's but you've learned fun facts about frogs and otters <laughs> i have <laughs> i took my daughter to the zoo today so it was a great time <laughs> that's cool give sh- share share one a uh, share a frog fact with everyone oh, well the frog fact i will acknowledge i didn't learn at the zoo uh-huh. i learned it from another podcast oh yeah Dungeons and Dragons podcast, so oh. not relevant to this necessarily. Yeah, but, but I think we share some audience members. Yeah. yeah. Frog's saliva is non-Newtonian. So when it's in their mouth, it is a liquid. But when it comes out, it is a solid so that they can better impact their prey with their tongue. Andrew Mims has a title that cannot be spoken aloud on this podcast <laughs> for a variety of reasons. Andrew Mims. It has been a long time since you've sat in on a discussion. It really has. It's been like... What, like two years or something like that? And yet, there is rarely an episode where your voice is not heard. (laughs) One of our primary voice boys who uh, incarnates all sorts of unusual characters, but my favorite this year has to have been the night in our strawberry episode. Oh, yeah, that was fun. Yeah, that was a a good time. I laughed very much. And uh, Mims is also, of course, on Strange Ride. Check him out playing both Walt and Mickey. (laughs) (laughs) 
And the edge coming up. (laughs) Coming up is going to be the edge. Uh, We, the members of of the the secret secret order of alchemical actors, do solemnly commit ourselves to a full and honest telling of the history of the occult as far as we know it. All right, I've already given you that hard plug on Patreon, so I'm not going to make you pay for this episode anymore. We're going to get right into the good stuff. The book, What to Audit came from Hubbard's own auditing of himself and others. Sort of like Freud would have his patients and sort of psychoanalyze himself, and then he, that's how he wrote his books. Hubbard would self-audit, uh, but also a- allow others to audit him. So he had these key players in the Church of Scientology who would come into his, you know, private chambers and he would grab, I don't know if he grabbed the E-meter. He might not have grabbed the E-meter, but they would go through the auditing process back and forth. Auditing is basically just asking questions. What is the E-meter? Getting there. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> uh, but the quick answer to that, the simple answer, because I think it doesn't hurt for folks to have it up front, is that it's like a lie detector. Oh. It's really, like, if you ever had your aura photographed? I have. Has anyone here had their aura photographed? Oh, you should. It's great fun. We are just holding these two metal rods, and they create a current through your body, and then they photograph the electric aura that forms around you, which huh. takes on different colors and sizes, shapes. I couldn't stop myself from just like pretending I'm getting electrocuted. <laughs> that <laughs> may make for a fun aura. aura. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but it, those are those rods are pretty much the same thing that they use in the e meter. They hook it up, and as you speak, if you know you're. Um, Oh, I don't know exactly how it works, but something about the way your pulse and the things, like if you're lying, the e-meter tells if you're lying. Okay. So that's a way to, mm, I guess, compel people to tell the truth. Yeah. Because they'll know if you're lying. Yeah. And then when you get into the weirdness that Hubbard's about to get into, like you can get people to say things about their past lives and stuff that the e-meter is saying they're telling the truth. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. But what is the root of your trauma? If you believe in something, you'll believe you're telling the truth, even if it's not true. But anyway, I'm sure we'll get. I, into I guess all the that. counter. Yeah, we are. But the counterpoint <laughs> to that would be that what I'm about to tell you, like Hubbard came to believe through auditing, so he didn't believe it before he convinced himself that it was true. Let me tell you. So, <laughs> <laughs> the process of auditing bears some similarity to meditation or trance, and Hubbard would sometimes compare it to hypnotism, but at its core it involves asking questions and demanding truthful answers. The electropsychometer, or e-meter as we've been talking about, helps with this process by gauging whether or not your answer is true. Humans have a hidden reactive mind, says Hubbard, that stores all of our traumas in the form of engrams, which uh, is his word for encoded moments of subconscious pain. There's a lot of jargon in Scientology, so if you can't keep (laughs) track of it all... It's already happening. (laughs) I'm already lost. Yeah, it's a jargony cult. Uh, Auditing, I'm not using the word cult, judgily. Is that a word? I made that word up. Auditing can uh, help uncover and eliminate the effects of your traumas, is the idea. We'll just dig them up, you relive them, and you're free of them. For Hubbard and other advanced Scientologists, auditing can reveal higher hidden forms of knowledge and precipitate a kind of enlightenment that Hubbard called going clear, meaning that the subject was clear of all blocks on his or her consciousness. The only problem with going clear, at least during Hubbard's lifetime, was that Hubbard would often discover through his research still deeper levels of clearness that his followers would then have to catch up to. Sort of like if you take acting one and then acting two, and I'm like, okay, you can go out and be an actor now. And then I'm like, oh, wait, 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 you got to come back. You got to do the Uta Hagen class. I just came up with acting three. Yeah, yeah. actually, theater kind of does work as well. Yeah, it does. <laughs> it's a bit of a the scam. The Stanislavski class. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, that's my number one. Anyway, uh, so, but that's what he would do. So he would tell you you're clear, and then he'd say, oh, no, 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 I just, I got deeper. I got clearer than I was before, so now I have to teach you the new clear, the OT3. And it costs more money to of do that? Of course, it's not free. <laughs> yeah. Costs money to get to Hubbard to that clearness. Uh, so from the outset, Hubbard had encouraged the auditing of a person's life going all the way back to birth and even conception. Remember your own conception, if you will. What? But... <laughs> Okay. I've been trying to block it out for 28 years. I feel like it's less trauma for me than for my mom. Yeah. <laughs> with, oh, boy. But with what to audit... 
he pushed still further back into past lives. So let me just clarify what he's talking about with conception, because you wouldn't have been able to see your parents. I know everyone is way grossed out at this point. You would be both sperm and eggs. So your vantage point on your conception would not be very pornographic. Uh, so it would just be like you just see yourself coming at yourself. <laughs> Headbutting a mirror. Yeah, yeah. Or yes. it would just be really dark because there's no light in our bodies. So uh, yeah, it would be pretty dark. You would feel yourself entering yourself. No, no, I, no. I don't. I don't want to think about that. I don't want to think about that, this Rob. This is awful. This is our first Hubbard quote. Do we want to try it? Oh, uh, to you. I used the most modern of techniques, 1952 and did a standard auditing address to the current lifetime of each one. I obtained mediocre results, particular partial recoveries, slight betterment in attitude. Then I audited each case addressing only the past track prior to this lifetime. The results were swift and spectacular. That's Mims, of course, playing the role of both Mims and Hubbard today. Past lives came complete with a complex lore and equally complex process of auditing out the negative influence of those past experiences. Hubbard also elaborated on the multi-part nature of the self. The auditor must consider the genetic entity, formerly known as the somatic mind, located at the core of the body, which has the genetic line engrams or traumatic memories, and has a record of all your past deaths. Hmm... It stays with the body through the death process, unlike the theta, which leaves much earlier, and then the entity goes to join the theta later. Theta, if you're into Scientology, you may have heard thetan or thetan, interchangeable. Originally, he called it the theta, Greek letter. But the genetic entity does not join up with the same theta after death. Thetas, which is Hubbard's correlation for your eternal soul, take up different genetic entities with each lifetime, and so our theta and our genetic entity did not belong to the same individual previously. We carry with us used genetic entities. Feel all right about that? No. You look confused. I'm very confused. So our soul goes into a different... It's just saying our soul goes into a different body when we're reborn? No, your body is not exactly your genetic entity. That's your messed body. <laughs> oh. So <laughs> you have all these components to you. Your soul is your theta, uh-huh. your thetan, but then you also have a genetic entity, which is a kind of immortal part of you that carries the baggage of your past lives. It's almost like your archetypal self because we share them. Do we have to go on a quest to find our <laughs> our like lump of meat lying around somewhere? Your messed body? Yep. We'll, no. we'll get there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Hubbard. The genetic entity apparently enters the protoplasm line some two days or a week prior to conception. There is some evidence that the GE is actually double, one entering on the sperm side one entering on the ovum side. The genetic entity has made its way through the evolutionary line and has at some point been an anthropoid in the deep forests of forgotten continents or a mollusk seeking to survive on the shores of some lost sea. Also seaweed washed ashore and a jellyfish beaten against the rocks. You've been all of these things. Or at least your genetic entity has been all of these things. Reminding people of their past lives on the evolutionary line can cause psychosomatic symptoms, like jaw pain when someone hears they were once a clam. Let us listen in as Hubbard audits a patient. I have an irrational fear of drying out, especially when I visit the beach. Focus and remember the time you were a kelp. (laughs) I am kelp floating on the surf. I can feel motion towards the sand, but there's nothing I can do to stop it because... I am kelp. Perhaps some fish will eat me before I reach the shore. Drying out would be the worst way to die. You're cured. Enjoy your vacation. Evolutionary lines remain rooted to a particular planet and even perhaps continent. Extraterrestrial genetic entities do not travel to Earth to join with Earth Thetans, but rather stay on their own home planet. So most of our entities are Earthbound. Next. We, uh, I, I guess it's possible that a stray one could <laughs> slip over. Okay, but okay, so I'm so our soul is separate from the genetic entity. Entity, 
But why can we... Why can we feel that I was a jellyfish and that the patient was kelp? Because your genetic entity, which is also eternal, has carried the memories of all of its lives. But they're, but they're separate? They are separate, but then they come together and the thetan picks up all that baggage from the genetic entity. So like... When I'm, when I'm born, the genetic entity becomes part of me? Yes. To, and then... You are your genetic entity, your thetan, and your messed body. Okay. So, but how does it get to me? <laughs> can, can I, for my own clarity, say, yeah, yeah. If my genetic entity is a thumb drive that I keep on my keys, okay, it has all of my experience and past memories. When I'm reborn, somebody just shoves that thumb drive into me, into my new like physical mesh body. That's a way to think about and it. And then so my soul is just like the operating system. Yeah. Yeah. So it just it goes to the cloud until you're born again, and then in the cloud, the yes. genetic entity meets the thetan, and then perfect. Yeah, somehow we made this even more nerdy, and that I love may it. Maybe confusing. <laughs> Next are injected entities, which are located in different areas of the body. These entities run off their own past deaths. On other tracks, hold sections of the body paralyzed, bar areas from being audited. Withhold information from I and do other mischief. The injected entities are the mysterious voices in the heads of some people. They make critical or commanding remarks to him or her and serve in general as a fine source of aberration. They cause paralysis, anxiety, stomach aches, arthritis, and many ills, which have been relieved by auditing them. Last and most important are the theta beings themselves. The theta being the I. It is who the individual is. The person is not guarding or harboring or hiding his theta being. He is the theta being. An enlightened theta being who has achieved some level of clearness possesses supernatural ability. The theta being with its alertness restored is capable of remolding the human body within its field, taking off weight here, restoring it there, changing appearance or even height. But Hubbard implores his followers not to get spectacular until a few of the boys make it. In other words, let more people arrive at the state of clear before drawing the attention of the scandal sheets by moving objects with your mind. I know that you've gone clear, and you can move objects with your mind, but let some, other, some of the other boys make it first. You don't want to make them jealous. You don't, well, you don't want to attract the attention, because uh, if you attract attention to nuclears, uh, it, it will prevent nuclears from entering the organization, because Hubbard believes it's possible that war might be declared on the cleared thetans of Earth any day. Oh. So we need to get as many clears into the club as fast possible before war is declared on us by theoretically extraterrestrial beings. Oh. Oh, okay. I was curious of who is going to be waging this war. There's a kind of war happening on Earth, too. Hubbard has a lot of enemies who are opposing him, particularly in his mind. But, you know, actually, literally, that's true, governments and things. But, yes, there's also extraterrestrial enemies after us. He's, like, gathering the Avengers. Yeah, it's kind of (laughs) cool. In 1952, it still sounds kind of hopeful and cool. It sounds like, like a, like, great value Nick Fury. (laughs) (laughs) This alertness or clearness uh, has been taken away from us, so if you wanted to be clear, you're not. Uh, It's been taken away from you by tens of thousands of years of trauma, all of which are stored in the various parts of your being. We are the victims of invaders, the worst of which on Earth is the fourth or fifth invader, depending on which Hubbard book you read, uh, who Hubbard would later identify as Lord Zenu or Zimu, again, depending on which book you read but also the exigencies of our various past lives need to be dealt with. Are you saying that he retconned his own religion? <laughs> Weird things happened after the Disney buyout. <laughs> we, we have been tortured and hypnotized, separated from our loved ones, and enslaved in these past lives. Hubbard. This universe is a rough universe. It's a, it is a terrible and deadly universe. Only the strong survive it. Only the ruthless can own it. Given one weak spot, a being cannot long endure it, for this universe will search it out and enlarge it and fester it and probe it, it and probe it until that weak spot is a festering wound so large that the being is engulfed by its own shores. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's sores for those of you in the cheap seats. 
Thetans, <laughs> Thetans didn't always have what Hubbard calls messed bodies or matter, energy, space, and time bodies, but Thetans were drawn to or tricked into occupying messed bodies, and things went downhill from there. Your pure Thetan self was basically good, happy, ethical, and aesthetic before the contagion of the messed universe got him. Then, still a Thetan. He wasn't very good, but he was still trusting and ethical. Finally, when he had a body, well, look around. The specific incidents you must run on the Theta line are directed solely, at this stage, toward attaining a voluntary and controlled separation between the meshed body and the Theta body. The torture we were subjected to by our captors, uh, once they had imprisoned us in our meshed bodies, or in order to do the imprisoning, was extreme and bizarre. Invaders used Theta traps to electronically hypnotize and enslave Thetans. After a Thetan was caught, he was jiggled rapidly and electronically <laughs> for some time. <laughs> Me too. I'm just picturing like the truffle shuffle from the Goonies. <laughs> Placed on a platform that whirled eccentrically, bounced, spun, rocked, hit from every angle, dropped over and over again, and then re-educated. It sounds like a baby. <laughs> That's what I did with mine. <laughs> Wow, that's you may have really uncovered something there. Um, these incidents, as well as our past experiences on the evolutionary line, are all stored as deep subconscious trauma that the auditor must discover and root out. Pudding makes me break out in a cold sweat. You were probably jiggled vigorously by an evil extraterrestrial a million years ago. I feel better already. Are these ideas a form of occultism or improvised social science? Was Hubbard, who had enjoyed reasonable success as a science fiction writer, creating an imaginary past and selling it as real, or did he honestly believe in his thetans in past lives? These are important questions not only for Scientologists, but also students of alternative religion and occultism. Hubbard's system proved very popular and attracted devoted followers across the globe. To this day, some of America's biggest celebrities, including... Tom Cruise, Isaac Hayes, John Travolta, Nancy Cartwright, voice of Bart Simpsons, uh, and Doug E. Fresh are card-carrying members of the church. Did you know that? Did you know that Bart Simpson was a Scientologist? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Juliette Lewis, Jeffrey Tambor, Laura Prepon, uh, or Prepon, when my wife and I were arguing about this, and Katie <laughs> Holmes are all former Scientologists. Uh, so people in your 30s, you, you probably know these names, and 40s. And even William S. Burroughs was a one-time member. Whether or not we know Scientologists in our personal lives, its influence on the culture, visible and invisible, is hard to ignore. So it's no small matter to ask whether, or to what extent, Hubbard was for real. I'm pretty sure I learned about scientology through south park like I, i'm pretty yeah. sure as a kid i didn't know it was a thing and then south park and i was like ha huh, this is weird and then uh, somebody was like no that's real and i'm like mm, <laughs> well isaac hayes did the voice of chef and isaac hayes quit the show because of the scientology oh. episode oh my god yeah. i didn't know that you also can't get the tom cruise scientology episodes on hbo max because i wish i had more information but something was very upset he was very upset about that, so it's pulled off of there. So you have to go to a different. They actually pulled South Park episodes off because a celebrity was mad at them. I guess he threatened to sue. Well, I mean, like, how many celebrities have probably threatened to sue South Park? That's what I'm thinking. Yeah, well, I guess odd. Scientology is scary in that sense. Yeah, we, this Tom episode Bruce. may be uh, oh, yeah, on Patreon faster than we think. Tom Cruise, famously, Tom Cruise uh, has disappeared. He hasn't done an interview since 2012. Well, he's he's done some recently for like the new Mission Impossible. He does the late night talk shows, but he's never he hasn't sat down with an interviewer to do any in depth conversation uh-huh. about his personal life. Have you considered inviting him, <laughs> Tom and Cruise? It's uh, I'm gonna throw shade. It's so weird that he was the one being like, oh, but like, can we like break the strike line to like promote our movies like that's so weird that like <laughs> he is the person to say that and yet hasn't yeah, done an interview he's fairly private yeah well he also pushed through covid to produce the last mission impossible yeah, yeah. he's hardcore yeah he's, he's hardcore. very like i oh, want to yeah. talk about my movie but it's not because he wants to talk about the movie and promote it i think it's because he's vain and was like oh my movie's amazing i need to talk about my <laughs> Just, movie <laughs> I, I can't get over the fact that like he is like so protective of like his face that like any video games or something pertaining to like things that he's been in can't use his character. Oh, or, that's like, interesting. Can't use like his his, his likeness. likeness. 
Mm, maybe that's what happened with South Park then. Huh, or did they? I uh, did they? I don't remember the episode, but was he yes. in it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But Michael Jackson has been in it. His estate could have sued. Yeah, Barbara Kanye Streisand was in, in like the He's first likely one. To sue. Yeah, that's true. Interesting. Kanye West. <laughs> yeah. Ye. Yay. Easy. Whatever. <laughs> Different. Whatever. Lafayette Ronald Hubbard was born in Tilden, Nebraska on the 13th of March, 1911. When he was six months old, his family spent Christmas in Oklahoma and then moved to Kalispell, Montana. His grandparents owned a cattle ranch outside of Kalispell where they pastured horses. Hubbard's various official biographies distributed by the church make claims about his youth. At the age of four, for example, he was supposed to have become a blood brother of the Blackfoot Indians. There's no way to say whether or not this is true, but the Pegan Reservation was 60 miles from his grandparents' property, just for reference. Not crazy far, but that's a long way for a four-year-old to walk. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I mean, unless he drove... Uh, <laughs> which is honestly just more impressive. Right. His parents just dropped him off. <laughs> Hubbard's more famous claim was that he was the uh, youngest person to become an Eagle Scout at the age of 12. In fact, he earned the Eagle rank as a member of Troop 10 in Washington, D.C. on the 24th of March, 1924. He had just turned 13. So we're splitting <laughs> hairs a little bit there with old Elron. <laughs> Uh, So this biographies I read of him So let me just give reference here It's John Atak and uh, uh, Brent Corydon And Hubbard's own son Worked with Brent Corydon on these biographies That I read of him And Atak is a former uh, Scientologist And Hubbard Jr. is a former Scientologist So there is I'm trying to parse what they're saying Like you just can't believe the official biographies From the Church of Scientology There's nothing you can do with them but you have to also bear in mind that the details that I'm getting here are from people who are very annoyed with him. <laughs> you know? And, so and they did say Scout's Honor. Yeah, yes. yeah. <laughs> they certainly have, like, they read court records and they have, you know, substantial evidence about him. But they really, like, the, I think it's a little petty to say he was not 12. He was 13. He was 13, but it was just like a few days. Anyhow... Uh, The thing about that is, though, (laughs) the Boy Scouts keep no records on the ages of their Eagle Scouts, or at least they didn't at the time. So to say he was the youngest, it's impossible to know. Uh, Maybe he was the youngest tagline. It sounds cool, yeah. (laughs) Does it? To me, it's it's impressive. Hi, I'm starting a religion. I was the youngest Eagle Scout ever. (laughs) If you talked to me when I was 16 and working on becoming an Eagle Scout, you'd have me sold. Yeah, like like every every Eagle Scout that I've met, part of the course. Scientologists claim that Hubbard traveled to China, India, and Tibet for four years, starting in 1925. In truth, he left the United States in 1927 when his father was stationed in Guam. He spent six weeks in Guam, stopping through a port in China on his way into and out of the island nation, and then he spent about a week in Beijing and visited a Buddhist monastery there. He was not especially impressed by the Chinese, and there is no record of his ever having made it to Tibet. Those travel records are not very encouraging. So, like, he just got to China and was just like, nah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, he was with his mom, so I'm sure there was an itinerary, and they just went, and yeah, <laughs> they did the week, and, and then they toured around the city and left. Yeah. Yes. I guess. But yes, afterwards, <laughs> then, he said, nah, I'd rather not do any more of that. I mean, in his defense, I'm trying to be nice because this is we're being tough to him this episode and, and we're going to. And that is what it is. There's good reason to and we won't feel so bad later. But 
then like Helena Blavatsky went to Tibet, we think, and the evidence for that, like it's 19th century, the records are really difficult to like this guy. We have military records. We have all the everything's written down. But for Blavatsky, there's we just like have to take the Dalai Lama's word that the book she wrote about Tibet sounds like she knows about Tibet. You know what I mean? Mm, there's yeah. less uh, recorded about her actual travel. In 1929, Hubbard returned to Washington, D.C. with his parents and graduated from the Woodward School for Boys, an institution devoted to difficult and slow learners. Again, let me remind you, these biographies are written by people who don't <laughs> like him. <laughs> That's awful. He graduated in 1930. It's so petty, but it, I guess it's he true. He deserves it, though. I guess it, he will eventually. He doesn't yet, but he will eventually. He majored in civil engineering at George Washington University, where he failed a course in atomic and molecular physics and left as a result of his poor grades. He then led the Caribbean Motion Picture Expedition with the goal of collecting underwater footage for Movie Tone aboard the sailing ship the Doris Hamlin, but no such footage was ever collected and the voyage returned a failure. They just didn't get in the water? (laughs) I think what's remarkable about him at this time period is he did like he did get on the boat but yeah for some reason they didn't record or what they recorded never made it to movie tone or any they they went down with the camera and like a scuba gear but like nothing to protect the camera (laughs) they were like oh we forgot it's not waterproof that or like the lens cap still (laughs) (laughs) didn't realize that they got back but what's amazing is that he's, I don't know, 18, 19 years old, and he talked somebody into letting him take their boat, slash all this camera equipment, and then talked a bunch of other 18-year-olds into going with him to do this thing. It's like he's, like, he's almost cool. Like, yeah. just almost cool. But, like, the thermostat's just set just a little too high. <laughs> yeah, because then nothing happened. The, right, yeah. the expedition is a failure, so, yeah, doesn't quite work out. Um, let's see that here. so weird. <laughs> it gets weirder, man. We are only just beginning to scratch the surface. He next left for Puerto Rico to prospect for gold. Uh, <laughs> but by all accounts, he did not strike it rich. He <laughs> <laughs> should have went to Colorado. It's, this is going to get a little closer to home. He married Margaret Lewis Grubb, uh, Louis Grubb, in Elkton, Maryland, in 1933. What? Yeah, he gets even closer to home than that, oh, friends. No. So. <laughs> then he happened on a career that paid. In 1934, he published his first stories in Thrilling Adventure, also The Phantom Detective, and Five Novels Monthly. Those are all uh, serialized fiction magazines. Uh, those stories included sea fangs and man killers of the air. Hell yeah. Sounds Not science like fiction book. yet. Man killers of the air. <laughs> yeah. They only kill men. The In women. That's <laughs> yes, only airborne men. So we're all good right now. I'd like to imagine sea fangs is just like his excuse as to why they didn't get any footage. <laughs> it was sea fangs. It ate the camera. Sea fangs. <laughs> He wrote under a series of pseudonyms, including Rene Lafayette, Morgan DeWolf, and Kurt Von Rocken. DeWolf. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty All cool. All of those sound like names of, like, side characters in Castlevania. <laughs> yes, that's true. <laughs> you can play as Kurt Von Rocken in the next game. <laughs> he published the 15-part Secret of Treasure Island and his first book, Buckskin Brigades. In 1936, his wife gave birth to his first child, Catherine May. He started writing science fiction in 1938 and published regularly in Astounding Science Fiction, earning the admiration of fellow science fiction writers Isaac Asimov and Robert Heinlein. So uh, I think there was some discussion on Discord as to whether or not he was good at this. Some other science fiction writers thought he was, but I guess that's a subjective thing. And he did spend four years writing these adventure stories. Well, he obviously sells it well, whether, I mean, I've never read it, so I can't say he wasn't a good writer or not, but he created a crazy amount of lore for his religion. (laughs) So, yeah, Yeah, he sounds like like he's a good writer. In theory. Yeah. (laughs) It's like the Urantia book. Remember, we talked about that being like all super sci-fi and stuff. His early work included Slaves of Sleep, about a man who travels to a parallel universe, and the dystopic final blackout set in England after a world war. In 1941, he began writing to the United States Navy, asking to be appointed an intelligence officer in the reserves and received his commission shortly before the bombing of Pearl Harbor. He wants to be where the action is. 
So he le- legit just like went up to the Navy and was just like, you make me an officer. And they're just like, yeah, cool. At first they were like, nah, but then yeah, eventually he wore them down. Yeah. What? Hubbard's, it gets more interesting. His career in the what? military is fascinating. Hubbard's sanctioned Scientology biographies describe how he commanded a British squadron during the war, received over 20 medals, and was badly wounded, made the subject of a movie starring Henry Fonda, <laughs> and stop. What movie? Uh, oh, I don't know the name offhand, but the, the of course, my biographers of Hubbard say, no, this movie had nothing to do with his life. Oh, oh, oh. Because what I'm about to describe to you, none of these events sound like they belong in a Hollywood movie. Oh, okay. So, here we go. He was called to active duty in November and eventually sailed for the Philippines, ending up in Australia. His commanding officers had differing views of his service. For one, he was intelligent, resourceful, and dependable. Another officer said he was not satisfactory for independent duty assignment. He is garrulous and tries to give impressions of his importance. He also seems to think that he has unusual ability in most lines. These characteristics indicate that he will require close supervision. What does Gallius mean? He talks too much. Ah. <laughs> about like stupid stuff. <laughs> yeah. He talks about nonsense too much. He was hospitalized for catarrhal fever and ended up in Massachusetts with the assignment to convert the trawler and the mist as a Navy patrol craft. So they did give him some, you know, assignments, do stuff, convert this ship. He next went to the Albina shipyards in Portland, Oregon to fit out the PC-815 and assume command when she was commissioned. Hubbard believed he spotted a submarine while in command of the ship and fired on an object, persuading the crew that they had disabled two submarines. Whether or not they actually had is impossible to say for sure. (laughs) But they did fire. There's a lot of argument as to whether or not there were any submarines in the water. No submarines subsequently surfaced. Suffice it to say, but yes. I guess you could sink, right? Yeah, yeah. Like if, if, if that's what I would assume would happen if you shot a submarine. So how would you know if you hit one? <laughs> it is scary to see how persuasive some people are. The <laughs> fact that he could just convince these people to shoot these super deadly missiles to add nothing, potentially. He convinced the military to let him have not yes. only the missiles, but a whole submarine, the whole ship to fire on submarines. What? Wow. So, Makes me think I need to get a new job. Yeah, <laughs> like, what, what am I doing with my life? Right. You could be persuading people of all kinds of things. In 1945, he failed the exam to post overseas and was incapacitated by an ulcer for seven months. The Scientology story of this illness ends with Hubbard miraculously curing himself within two years. Two years... That feels ulcer? like that's enough time to cure an ulcer, like an ulcer to cure by itself. Oh, just to get better? Yeah. Uh. <laughs> I did it. <laughs> my body is so strong and supernatural. Yeah, I broke my elbow. It got better, but it was me who did it. <laughs> <laughs> like, it didn't could, take me two years. I could see I, I could see this being a movie, but I could only see it being like slapstick comedy. <laughs> Henry like Fonda Mr. stars in. Mr. Bean accidentally walking in. <laughs> Yeah, like, like I'm thinking, like the like the the old Pink Panther movies. <laughs> Fire when ready. <laughs> also, in 1945, while on leave, Hubbard met the occultist and rocket science pioneer Jack Parsons while in Los Angeles. Hubbard later characterized this period as a mission he'd undertaken for military intelligence to quote break up the OTO Lodge. Parsons was at this time hosting and partially leading a lodge in California, the only lodge I think in existence at the time. What Hubbard, is the uh, OTO Lodge? Ordo Templi Orientis. I have no idea what that means. Bless but... you. <laughs> <laughs> the oh my goodness, so many people are yelling at their radios now. The that is the Alistair Crowley organization. Oh, yeah, okay. he didn't found it, but he led it at this time gotcha. period. So, uh, where were we? Uh, Hubbard had a long-standing interest in occultism, having first happened on Aleister Crowley's Book of the Law while visiting the Library of Congress with his mother when he was in his teens. He just sort of got bored and started wandering around, and he was like, this looks cool. Uh, In his 1952 Philadelphia Lectures, the same year he published the book we started with What to Audit, Hubbard referred to the late Aleister Crowley as my very good friend. (laughs) Now, now, communication... I feel like Olivia would say that, too. (laughs) Well... (laughs) Communication between members of the OTO and the Order's international leader, namely Crowley, suggested that Parsons' followers and friends suspected Hubbard was attempting to trick Parsons. 
Hubbard had invited Parsons to join him in a business venture to move some sailboats from Florida to California, in which Parsons put up almost all of the capital. You can see our episodes on Parsons for this story in greater detail. Hubbard then absconded with the money, the boats, and Parsons' girlfriend, Sarah Northrup. <gasps> Whoa! <laughs> I steal your money, your boats, and your bitch. <laughs> now, Damn. for clarification, he is still married at this point. Isn't yes, he? yes, he's married. <laughs> Double check. Married to Margaret, has a child. Uh, did I say Car- Alistair Crowley had written to Carl Germer, uh, who was one of the leaders of the OTO? Did I say this? Um, that he believed Hubbard was, quote, playing a confidence trick on Parsons? No. Well, so Crowley could see all the way from England that Parsons was being. So he did write about L. Ron Hubbard, Crowley. He knew of him, knew he existed, but very good friend. Yeah, wh- <laughs> when he not. says when he says the late Alistair Crowley, like was this after like he had actually died, or did he just yeah, think yeah. that he was dead? No, he was dead. He was okay. dead at this point. He died in the late forties. Um, what were we talking about? So he absconded uh, with the money, the boats, and Parsons' girlfriend Sarah Northrup, <laughs> who, who we talk about as Betty in the Parsons episode. Parsons flew to Miami. Uh, and divine intervention in the form of a storm prevented Hubbard and Betty from getting away on one of these boats. Parsons oh. successfully sued Hubbard, winning back two of the boats, uh, two of the three that they had purchased, and a promissory note for 2900 bucks. Why didn't they get the third boat? Because they kept it, Hubbard and Betty. Oh, but they paid him for, for it. For $2,900. I understand. Yeah. Oh, he didn't get his girlfriend just... <laughs> No, the girlfriend's gone. How rude do you have to be to steal... A man's boats, money, and girlfriend. Yeah, he took it all. Like, Left him with two nothing. out of three, maybe. He's like the Grinch at Christmas. He leaves nothing behind. Now, with the OTO, there's a lot of free love kind of happening. In yeah, that, yeah, right? yeah. So, so. It's, it's not nice or kind that he took Betty, but not the least expected. Parsons allowed Hubbard and Betty to have a relationship in the house in front of him because he was trying to be cool about it. Mm. You hear like if you uh, do, talk about like the '60s, this was a similar issue. Like a, because everyone was free loving, you had to just like be cool with your partner having other partners. You were free to have other partners. Parsons was in a similar situation. Maybe you really are cool. Maybe you aren't, but that's the ethic. So you have to okay. go along. All right, it. so that that makes it maybe a, a little less shitty. Yeah, but still, it's still hilarious. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. The expectation is not that. Hubbard will just run off with her and all of your money and ruin your life. <laughs> Hubbard married Betty in Chestertown, Maryland. Oh, what? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Not 45 minutes from where we are right now. Where? Throw a rock really hard. <laughs> Chestertown. Chestertown, Maryland. Like in a church in Chestertown? I guess. We don't, I mean, I don't have the exact details, but we, I, we know that he that married church. Betty in Chestertown, Maryland. Yeah. But he's still married to the other lady. That's correct. So it was not a real marriage, was it? That was August 1946. He was still married to Margaret, uh, from whom he had apparently become estranged. (laughs) (laughs) You don't say. (laughs) Never would have guessed. Hubbard would formally divorce his first wife a year and four months later, although he was violating the law during the interim, of course. By 1947, the couple were living in Hollywood, and over the ensuing two years, he would develop his now internationally known so-called science of the mind, Dianetics. Hubbard published his first article on Dianetics in 1950 in the Explorers Club Journal. He was a member of the Explorers Club. That sounds like the dorkiest thing in the world. (laughs) Like, it sounds like something fun to join. But like, you can't just join. Yeah. You have to actually be an explorer. And then it's just a bunch of old men just sitting at a table being like, I walked a mountain once. But <laughs> I stole a man's three boats. <laughs> this is also amazing in a way because he had to persuade him that his movie tone thing with the camera under the water and his adventures in Tibet were real. That's how he ah. got into the Explorers Club. My man's a good talker. Uh, you gotta be to be a cult leader. Well, <laughs> where were we? So um, he called his article Terra Incognita colon the mind. So that's how we also made it fit in the Explorers Club, Club Journal. Your mind is the final frontier. John Campbell, Hubbard's editor at Astounding Science Fiction, was an early convert, as was the medical doctor Joseph Winter, another writer for Campbell's periodical on medical issues. So all the science fiction people are getting into Dianetics. 
joining us now, Olivia Literal, our Grand Master of the Order. Hi. Hello. I'm here. Throw me on in. I don't know what's going on. This is a lot of people on the episode. I think that's why I just got so thrown off. Yeah, it was a popular take. We weren't sure because Luke might be at the zoo, but he's not at the zoo. So we weren't sure who would show. And I came home. Yeah, that's how that works normally. Mims knew today that he could make it, so I just didn't know if I would have enough people, but now I have all these people. It's not as bad as that time we did Poltergeist. That was like 40 people. 40? Nah, it was 20. (laughs) Just like all crowded around. Like, was this when you were still in like one mic? It was our first year. Yeah, Poltergeist. L. Ron Hubbard set up shop in Bayhead, New Jersey, and was commissioned to write a textbook about Dianetics, but by Arthur Seppos. He finished the 400-page project in six weeks. Dianetics returned to the practice of reenacting trauma abandoned by Freud, working backward in time from the present moment. Hubbard proposed that it was necessary to find the earliest engram, the birth engram, but possibly also the engrams of the sperm and the egg. Here you go. Bonking yourself on the head. Why, though? Why, though? Because that's your trauma. That was traumatic when you were a sperm and you met yourself and you were an egg. <laughs> that was a rough... Think about that. I mean... The I... identity crisis that that precipitates. It can't last long. You're going to be one entity soon enough. Yes, that's true. And then it'll feel much better. Well, that's a whole different kind of trauma. We got to deal with that trauma either way. <laughs> the trauma is I'm trapped in this mortal coil. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you were, a, you were a free-floating thetan, man. Life was good. Now we got to pay taxes and shit. <laughs> <laughs> it's dramatic. <laughs> Hubbard biographer John Atak suggests that Hubbard may have taken this idea from Nandor Fodor, who had published On the Trauma of Birth only a year earlier. But whereas Fodor said almost no one could re-experience their birth, Hubbard said everyone could <laughs> through auditing. Anyone here re-experience their birth? Olivia, no. have you re-experienced your birth? No, I almost died. Does that count? Did you see the, the, the t- tunnel? Um, no, it was just black. Mm. With a lot of noise. What was the noise? Does it sound like a hospital room? No, it was water. You did not re-experience your birth? No. Oh, well, I guess it would be wet. Yeah. <laughs> Looking at you, Savannah, Why? like she would know. <laughs> it just felt very calm and like I was just floating at one point and that's when I was like, oh, I'm drowning. When did this happen? Uh, when we did the thing. The whitewater rafting. Oh, oh, yeah, that was a time. A yeah. long time oh. ago. Yeah. yeah. But you didn't drown? Because of you, really, and that's I do what it. I can. Because <laughs> Luke abandoned his girlfriend to save me. Oh, that was nice. Well, Leslie Ish. had Jillian. It was fine. No, I was, honestly, I was like, there too. better hands. Really? I, was, hey, I, I had Jillian on one side, and Leslie had her on yeah. the other side, but yeah. then when we went over the little waterfall, I got swept away, and then Jillian yeah. thought I died, and it was a whole thing. Dianetics <laughs> quickly developed a popular following, with Hubbard selling 150,000 copies of his textbook. Campbell received a thousand letters a week about Dianetics at his magazine, and Hollywood in particular was fast to adopt it. Six foundations were established across the United States to research and practice Dianetics. On March the 8th, Betty gave birth to Alexis Valerie Hubbard, who would become the center of one of the darkest incidents in Hubbard's biography. Hubbard's second wife, Sarah Betty Northrup, had been his personal auditor, and was a member of the board of directors of his research foundation, but their relationship had deteriorated considerably by October of 1950. Northrop had asked the foundation to get psychiatric help for her husband, and Hubbard sent a letter to the FBI accusing her of attacking him in his sleep and forcing him to create a will bequeathing his copyright and a share of the foundation to her and leaving their baby daughter unattended in a car. He just wrote a letter to the FBI? I don't know why the FBI intervenes in the car scenario. Like, I don't know why that would... I've never I've never gone through a divorce. I really hope I don't have to go through a divorce. He's not there yet, but he's but getting like, there. If you have to write a letter to the FBI pertaining <laughs> to your divorce, something is horribly wrong. And did he, like, did he send it through the mail and it took like a <laughs> week or so to get there? You have there. to, yeah, it's 1950. And then it You're probably gonna... took them a month to sort through all the letters that yeah, they're getting that from all the away. other L. Ron Hubbards being like, my wife is trying to get me to... My wife is trying to kill me. <laughs> Why the FBI should care, I have no idea. 
but the FBI did monitor him. So anyway, <laughs> that's why he was like, "Hey, FBI so agent, there, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's like a little camera in his house. Be like, hey, my wife's trying to kill me." He pulls down the bug. <laughs> <laughs> Can you guys hear me? <laughs> Uh, in their divorce paperwork, Northrop said that Hubbard dominated and tortured her uh, with experiments. Not wanting to be married any longer, he told her it would hurt his reputation to divorce her, and so she should go ahead and kill herself if she loved him. Holy shit. Okay, Henry VIII, what the fuck? Right. Uh, he deprived her of sleep for days, which was a common tactic that he used with a variety of Scientologists, and then plied her with sleeping pills. That he did not always do. So the idea would be that she would overdose on sleeping Whoa, pills. What the what fuck? The fu- like his wife dying wouldn't be any worse on his reputation? Well, if he if she just died, I mean, you mean the suicide? Yeah. Uh, it's the 50s, man. I can't explain their thought process. He he's also just spin it. I guess. You can maybe spin that easier. It's also just he's a crazy person, but <laughs> in <laughs> hot take uh, <laughs> i don't think it is <laughs> northrop's already said that uh in christmas uh 1950 he strangled her rupturing her uh eustachian tube and injuring her left inner ear but then, she survived yes yeah yeah well she she's going to divorce leave. him yeah on the 23rd of February, 1951, Hubbard, along with Frank Dessler, the head of the Los Angeles Dianetics Foundation, abducted Alexis from her crib and kidnapped Northrop and brought her to Yuma, Arizona to subject her to treatment. So, abducted their child, grabbed his wife, and then committed her. Oh. In Yuma, Arizona. So he also drove her to commit her. Jesus. Northrop received $200 uh, and custody of Alexis, but she was also asked to sign a document stating that everything, what am I saying here? Everything she'd said about Hubbard in the proceedings was false. So that was the end of the divorce proceedings. These at least were Northrop's claims recorded in the divorce proceedings, by the way. But let me go back to Alexis's kidnapping. It's a distinctly bizarre event. John Sanborn, interviewed by Hubbard biographer Ben Corydon, was babysitting when Hubbard and Desler showed up. Everyone else had gone to the movies, and Sanborn had been comforting the one-year-old Alexis, who had woken up sobbing at 10, a- uh, 10, 10 at night, uh, and implored him not to go to sleep. She like could feel something bad was going to happen, the kid. After putting her back to bed, Desler showed up in a felt hat and topcoat, holding a gun. So Sanborn puts the kid to bed, Dessler appears, dressed in a felt hat and top coat, and pointing a gun, like a character in a Agatha Christie novel. What time of year is this? Uh, I guess it's fall. Uh, maybe winter. Are you basing that off of what he's wearing? <laughs> it's Christmas. Nope, that's when he strangled her. Uh, mm. The kidnapping happened in... Sorry, <laughs> gotta keep my... That's a <laughs> February. I'm trying to figure out what kind of psychopath we're dealing with. It's February, so it's suit. winter. It's oh, February. Sorry, it could be pretty cold, I guess, but... Put right, your top February, coat February, I'll let it go. <laughs> then you can wear your felt hats. Um, so, he told him, Mr. Hubbard is here to get his child. Ew, I don't like that. I don't know why. I did that just... But Aren't they in his house? Only at this moment does Hubbard appear. No, they're... Uh, the, the kid's sort of, like, staying with Sarah. Oh, oh, okay. And Sarah's out at the movies, and this guy's babysitting. I gotcha. And then in swoops... Hubbard's guy, and then Hubbard himself appears dressed also in a felt hat and top coat. <laughs> uh, he appears from a shadowy doorway when lightning cracks in the back and he walks in. I'm yeah, here for my of. child. Yeah. <laughs> Arthur Conan Doyle stuff. Uh, so uh, he grabs Alexis from the crib. Sanborn tried to give Hubbard advice on what to do when Alexis woke up, because I guess she's still sleeping, but Hubbard waved him off. He was taking Alexis, he said, to be watched by a nursing service, which is true. He then dropped her off with a nursing service, which was a thing, I guess, in the 50s. I was about to say, what? what is a nurse? Is that like a... It's like assisted living for babies, I guess. So a daycare? <laughs> yeah, but like overnight. It's an overnight daycare. <laughs> a baby depository? Kind of, kind of is, yeah. But you got to remove the word day from the nursing service because it is also night care. That's the funniest, sir. <laughs> Corey, Corey did, well, I mean, they need assistance to live, oh, do they not? We're going to laugh about that later tonight. 
Corydon also interviewed Northrop herself in July 1986, 35 years after her separation from Hubbard. Northrop said that Hubbard took huge amounts of stilbestrol, which is a female testosterone, and that he suffered from severe psychosomatic blindness, losing sight at random. Think about that. That was a lot to think about. (laughs) Yeah, he'd just be going through his day and he would go blind. Then it would just go away and he'd be fine again. That's pretty terrifying. Pretty terrifying. Yeah, that's horrifying. That's... She married him in part because he told her that if she didn't, he would kill himself. Oh, great. What a... What a catch. It's the 1950s. (laughs) In the 1970s, the Church of Scientology circulated a story that Sarah Northrup had died. She hadn't. And Hubbard had visited her on her deathbed. He didn't, since she was dead. He was dead before her. In this fantasy scenario, she apologized to him and told him she'd been blackmailed into telling lies about him. Northrop had spent three months away from her daughter when she was finally returned to her in real life. Speaking with Corydon, she referred to her last years with Hubbard. Uh, the years they were together uh, were five in all. So the, the first two, I guess, were cool because she was running away from Jack Parsons on a sailboat. And then the last three, not so cool. That's a uh, lot of shit to happen in five years. That is. Yeah. Well, that's Hubbard, though. A year with Hubbard is like ten years with the rest of us. Uh, but she called those years disgusting. I I can't imagine why. (laughs) Well, the foundations uh, quickly fell into financial arrears. Remember, Hubbard has inspired all these Dianetics foundations, and now they're all going broke. And Don Purcell, the head of the Omega Oil Company, came to the rescue, creating a foundation in Wichita. Soon afterward, Hubbard began to pivot toward the study of past lives in his Science of Survival, and his longtime supporters, including Winter Campbell and Seppos, lost interest in his work and, in Winter's case, even spoke out against him, separating Dianetics, which he still believed in, from its author, who he attacked. Purcell encouraged Hubbard to put the foundation into voluntary bankruptcy, but Hubbard refused, instigating yet another fallout, this time with his oil billionaire benefactor. Don't argue with your oil benefactor. <laughs> oh, that's that's rule number one. Of- you don't argue with your sugar daddy, and you don't argue <laughs> with your... <laughs> no. Nope. Or your daycare service. A series of lawsuits ended with Purcell getting control of Hubbard's system and works, leaving Hubbard out in the cold. Nice. Because the billionaire, of course, has more money for better lawyers. This formed the background for the book that we started with, What to Audit. In his initial textbook, Hubbard had claimed that an individual could achieve remarkable results by auditing the present life. But off after he lost the rights to that whole system about your present life, he called present life Dianetics slow and mediocre. <laughs> and claimed that miraculous results could only be achieved through whole track or past life auditing. That's so funny. Yeah. You know that thing I don't have the rights to anymore? Bullshit. <laughs> right. So like if Bezos got control of occult confessions and I said, I just lied to you the whole time I was doing that podcast. This podcast is the real podcast. Now I'm going to tell you the real story. Just did all <laughs> the episodes again. Fuck Amazon. <laughs> I can't say that. I need them. Uh, <laughs> they were slow to put the show up, though. Anyway. Where were we? Uh, so it, now the old system's slow and mediocre. In 1952, he married his third and final wife, Mary Sue Whip, and they moved to Phoenix, Arizona to set up a new group. Purcell was unable to turn a profit even after getting control of Hubbard's works, and he dissolved the Wichita Foundation and returned its assets and copyrights to Hubbard in 1954. Everything with Hubbard happens quick, just a couple years. People try it, and they're like, yeah, screw it, I'm done with this. Hubbard had originally encouraged people to set up their own Dianetics associations, but now he claimed that the only effective and official organizations were the ones sanctioned and overseen by him. Mm -hmm. Rounding up episode one here. In the first half of his life, Hubbard was a deeply fanciful, fairly rakish, and increasingly disturbed human being. He invented a kind of folk psychology that worked for the people who practiced it, curing psychological and psychosomatic ailments and providing people with a new direction and community. But the popularity of Dianetics fed Hubbard's ego, and his boundless creativity found ways for him to wield the core positives of Dianetics to create something far more sinister than the foundations that had initially formed around him. I'm talking, of course about the Church of Scientology. As the 60s dawned, Hubbard would become megalomaniacal. 
his worst impulses and characteristics dominating his personality as he assumed total control over the people who followed him. Now, if that isn't a cliffhanger, friends, I don't know what is, but if you want to hear the second half and the rest of what Olivia thinks about L. Ron Hubbard, you're gonna have to join Patreon. Until next time, friends, this is Dr. Rob C. Thompson of Occult Confessions, saying bye-bye. Toodles. Bye! <laughs> bye-bye. <laughs> Are we good to keep going? you said it. Yeah.